Talking History on News Talk. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and work of the romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and we'll be finding out why he believed that no one could be a great poet without also being a profound philosopher. We'd love you to join our discussion. You can send us a text at 53106, text cost 30 cents, or you can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Last week, we looked at the life and counterlife of Philip Roth and found out about plague, pestilence and pandemics throughout history. That's in one of our monthly book shows. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Born in 1774, dead in 1834, Coleridge was an inquiring spirit, a poet, a critic and a philosopher in the era of the great romantics. Although now chiefly known for a handful of poems, such as The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Kublai Khan, there was much more to his life and to his work. Dismissed by some as an opium addict, a plagiarist and a mystic charlatan, Coleridge is acclaimed by others as a brilliant and imaginative mind whose work still resonates today. And to explore his life and his legacy, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor William Keach is Professor of English at Brown University in Rhode Island and is an expert on Romanticism, language and politics and he edited Coleridge, The Complete Poems for the Penguin English Poets series. Professor Rosemary Ashton is Emeritus Quain Professor of English Language and Literature and an Honorary Fellow of UCL in London. An expert on Romantic and Victorian Literature and Culture, she's the author of The Life of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, A Critical Biography. Professor Tim Fulford is Professor of English at De Montfort University in Leicester and is an expert on the literature of the Romantic era and he's written extensively about Coleridge and is the Conference Director of the Friends of Coleridge Society. We'll also be joined by Professor Geoffrey Barbeau, Professor of Theology at Wheaton College in Illinois and Review Editor of the Coleridge Bulletin. He writes on Romanticism, Religion and Literature and is the author of Sarah Coleridge, Her Life and Thought, an intellectual biography of the poet, theologian and daughter of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And we'll also be talking to uh, Professor J.C.C. Mays, Emeritus Professor of Modern English and American Literature at University College Dublin. He's a leading Coleridge scholar and his books include Coleridge's Ancient Mariner, Coleridge's Experimental Poetics and Coleridge's Dejection Ode. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. And William Keach, we might begin with you and a question, I suppose, about Coleridge and his reputation today, because... Many people will know Coleridge from a handful of poems, but actually there's an awful lot to him than simply the rhyme of the ancient mariner and Kublai Khan. Well, yes, that's true, but I think those are the two points to begin with, because I was very pleased that you opened the program by brief quotations from from those two poems. Those those passages are um, is important to what I would like to say at this point. Those passages, those bits of poetry of Coleridge are not just known to people who regularly read poetry in the English language. They're part of the common culture, at least they are to a certain extent in the United States. And I think that's important uh, to to recognize. Uh, Of course, they're both points also that can lead into extremely complicated uh, philosophical and and even political uh, issues. But they they have a capacity to reach ordinary readers that's always impressed me as defining one side of Coleridge as a as a writer, but both poetry and otherwise, um, as we recognize on the other side, uh, his uh, extraordinary philosophical erudition and sophistication and and complexity. So um, uh, that's 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 my initial reaction to the to the way you pose the the issue here at the beginning. Very good. And Rosemary, it's interesting we have someone who has a fascinating life and also has such interesting and important work. Sometimes you might have a, a literary figure whose whose life may not match the the, the drama or colour of, of the works, but here with Coleridge you have you have it all really. Yes, you certainly do. Um he uh, he had the most extraordinary life. Uh, generally, uh, everything happened to him. That, that, that things that you might not believe uh, happened to him. For example, uh, he, he he ran out of money when he was a student at Cambridge, 
and was desperate. Uh, he was the youngest of 10 children uh, and had been sent off to boarding school in London uh, at the age of nine by his mother after his father died. He was 53 when he was born. His older brothers, many of them he didn't know. They were already away in their 20s in the army in India and places like that. And Coleridge was, right from the beginning, a sensitive child and a sensitive and childlike adult uh, who ran away because of his debt. He was scared of telling his older brothers and his mother about his debt at, uh, at Cambridge. So he ran away and joined the army right in 1793, just when the army was recruiting for the war against post-revolutionary France. Uh, and of course he was hopeless as a soldier, couldn't do it. What he did do was write letters for uh, his compatriots uh, to their sweethearts and so on. And he was known to uh, correct, he was standing on sentry one day, and um, he was known to correct two officers walking by, talking about um, Greek classical literature, and he corrected their Greek. That's entirely typical, it's only one thing about him. But he was extraordinarily sensitive, childish, and yet a genius. Everybody who knew him said he was the most wonderful uh, genius, the most intelligent and intellectual uh, person. And in a way, what was, what was great about him was also his downfall, in a way, because he was everything. He was a psychologist, a philosopher, interested in religion, tried all sorts of different religions, uh, history, you name it, and Coleridge was on top of it. And he also had the divine gift of the gab. <laughs> he was a great conversationalist and the most famous of his day, and also the gift of the gab in poetry, doing, as William says, uh, extraordinarily complex uh, poetry, and yet simple at the same time, taking people, readers, with him, with that wonderful sense of rhythm and rhyme, and joining the everyday with the extraordinary. William, I'm very struck by how Rosemary described him there in terms of being a, a philosopher as well as a poet, a conversationalist, all these different dimensions to him. Uh, you know, he was also a, a literary critic, and I read that it was his writings on Hamlet that changed how scholars and people in general viewed Hamlet and that his contribution therefore isn't just in terms of the poetry, it's also a a much wider, even in terms of how he influenced the people around him and the impression he seemed to have made on on his fellow poets and writers. Uh, Yes, it's true. His his engagement uh, as a critic is, is very broad. And very encompassing. I mean, he he um, his he's one of one of the great uh, critics of Shakespeare. I think in in the English language, not just in what he said about Hamlet, but, but more broadly than that, uh, his his engagement. Some of it uh, uh, conflicted uh, with his friend Wordsworth over the language of poetry uh, is is fundamental to the way we understand the arguments about what poetry could be in the Romantic period. Um, and, of course, is what these days we might call a literary theorist. His, uh, his discussions about the relationship of, of allegory and symbol, the distinction between allegory and symbol, is still something people are debating about or using in their debates about, about very fundamental kind of theoretical or conceptual questions. So uh, the depth, and I, I, I just put it this way, although as a poet, uh, and to some extent, as a human being, I have a kind of um, uh, feeling of disappointment as Coleridge grows older past the, the great decade in which he and Wordsworth published lyrical ballads and in which he was um, uh, a, 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 a political progressive, I guess we might say these days. He, he, he became increasingly conservative. And, um, uh, and, and yet, through that entire period, he continues to produce literary criticism and and philosophical commentary and uh, on fundamental theoretical questions about l- literature that um, that are absolutely still alive and influential and uh, central to the debates that we're having now in the work we do. 
And even William, just on that point about his maybe increasing conservatism as he grew older, someone who was very much a political radical in his earlier years, by the time of, say, Robert Emmett's rebellion in Ireland, you see him writing really quite conservative things and uh, things that you wouldn't have expected the younger Coleridge to have written. Yes, that's true. I'm I'm very interested in, well, I'm interested in Robert Emmett and, and Emmett in the context of the uh, the Irish Rebellion and of 1798. I always tell my students 1798 is not just important because that's the, the year of the first edition of Lyrical Ballads. It's important because of the United Irishmen's Rebellion, and I, I want them to know about that alongside uh, the, the, what they're beginning to, to think about in terms of lyrical ballads. But, um, but yes, I, I, think it's, I think actually uh, Coleridge's comments on Emmett Mark uh, are among the things that mark a kind of turning point in his, uh, in his political thinking away from the, the, um, the openness and the, uh, the siding with the oppressed that you see in the decade of the 1790s towards uh, an increasingly conservative and in some cases even reactionary position, uh, very Anglican, uh, very pro-British. And of course, his commentary on Ireland, Ireland brings that out more than almost uh, in any other aspect of, his, of his, uh, what he has to say. Tim, can we talk about his career in the 1790s and maybe his friendship with Wordsworth that's been mentioned and even this whole idea of the lake, the lake poets, the idea of the romantic movement and Coleridge's leading role in that. What exactly do we mean when we talk about these different ideas? Um, well, that's a difficult and you know, fairly complex subject. I mean, the first thing to say is that they didn't think of themselves as romantic poets. That's a label that was put upon them in the 20th century. But they did see themselves as producing something new and different. And they did associate the the changes they wanted to make in poetry with political change as well, a rejection of the old order in politics. I mean, going back to what William was saying about Emmett and, and the United Irishman in 1798, which is also when Wordsworth and Coleridge produced their revolutionary lyrical text, uh, Lyrical Ballads. I think the decisive issue for Coleridge in the 90s became political violence. He had been a great advocate of revolutionary change, but he became frightened after 1793-94 when the revolution in France produced popular massacres and then gradually a government that also used violence to... Uh, maintain its rule. And after that, he became quite chary about uh, endorsing uh, radical change if he thought it was going to involve uh, violent rebellion, particularly afraid of what he saw as uh, the lower class mob. And there's a certain irony there because Lyrical Ballads, the, the, the volume was very much modelled on the speech of ordinary rural people, the, the very kind of people who some of them at least had become involved in the United Irishman movement. Uh, and it was a kind of poetry that were, was based on saying, particularly Wordsworth's poetry, less so Courage's, but they signed up to this together, that uh, the ordinary speech of ordinary folk, rural folk, was actually more full of virtue, political virtue and moral virtue, than the more complicated and, and higher class kind of language that, that polite and, and gentlemanly uh, people spoke. So there was an inversion there of what you might call the language hierarchy, which, you know, is still powerful today where we assume that people with working class accents or working class vocabularies are, it's often assumed they're less important or less intelligent than, than those who've learned a more sophisticated uh, vocabulary at school and so on. So this was to uh, radical in, in the... Uh, the literal sense of, of that word, going down to grassroots and, and saying that the language of shepherds and farmers was uh, more trustworthy, less full of deviousness and pretense, and a better language for poetry than the, uh, the language of their social superiors. Uh, and he and Wordsworth very much hatched this kind of poetry together in response to uh, reading uh, folk ballads that had been revived in the 1770s, the, the old ballads that were sung in Scotland and, and Ireland, border ballads, and uh, creating ballads of their own, a sort of modernised version of, of that older kind of folk poetry. 
Um, this is very often language that's written in, in ordinary speech, ordinary conversation, and uh, uh, language that deals with homely subjects such as uh, rural dispossession, uh, the, the view of the world of, of sheep farmers, or an ordinary person sitting in their country cottage and their particular uh, uh, in-the-moment uh, range of consciousness. Rosemary, we've mentioned the year 1798 and we've mentioned Lyrical Ballads, which was published in that year. The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner appears in that. And I wonder what is so brilliant about that work? Why has it endured and resonated and be, been so popular over the centuries? And what what is the claim to greatness in that poem? Uh, well, um, just to pick up from what Tim said, um, it's interesting that um, the Intermoner is part of lyrical ballads, but it's, it, it's, one, it's his only real uh, contribution. The rest is mainly Wordsworth. And Coleridge remembered later that the two of them were going to be, he was very keen always on a sort of expansion of sympathy and opening things out and and generally looking at, at, at things from every uh, aspect. And he later remembered that, or, or partly made it up really, but that Wordsworth's plan had been to do, as Tim was saying, um, to, to look at things and people of every day, but to give the charm of novelty to these things of every day. Whereas he, and he is here definitely thinking of the ancient mariner, was going to choose or had chosen persons and characters supernatural or at least romantic. So he uses the word romantic there, yet seems to transfer from our inward nature a human interest, interest and a semblance of truth sufficient to procure for, them, for these shadows of imagination. And here it comes, his most famous um, literary critical remark. He, wants to, to, he wanted to procure for the shadows of imagination, the romantic or supernatural characters, that willing suspension of disbelief for the moment, which constitutes poetic faith. So that willing suspension of disbelief for the moment, which constitutes poetic faith, that was what he thought the ancient mariner was doing, and indeed that is what it's doing. It's a poem which is written in very simple rhythm and rhyme and language, but right from the start, it's got something mysterious about it. Um, and the, the mystery... A terrible, it's a nightmare poem, terrible things happen to the, the ancient mariner and his um, crewmates. Uh, and the whole thing is a mystery. Why do these things happen? What's, what's the cause? What are cause and effect in the world? How do we know that the shooting of the albacross, which is the terrible deed that the mariner does in the poem, how do we know that that's the reason why then the ship becomes becalmed um, and they're, 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 they're all starving and they're all parched and dry uh, and then the, his crewmates fall down dead and he's left in a kind of death in life, life and death. Um, why should that be? Uh, he, he, the question gets asked but not answered and it's all done in a kind of lyrical language, language which suggests oh, uh, mystery and problems, and yet which skips, so it skips along. So there are kind of contradictions within it. If you, just, if you just read the first couple of verses, it is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three, by thy long grey beard and glittering eye. Now wherefore stopped thou me? The bridegroom's doors are opened wide, and I am next of kin. The guests are let, the feast is set, may cheer the merry din. He holds him with his skinny hand. There was a ship, quoth he. Hold off, unhand me, greedier gloom. It soon his hand dropped he. He holds him with his glittering eye. The wedding guest stood still and listens like a three years child. The mariner has his will. So you know already that there's something really um, dubious and suspicious and worrying and anxious making. And yet it's all done in this extraordinarily brief land, much rhyme, much rhythm, strong rhythm, a lot of internal rhymes in the lines. The guests are met, the feast is set. That's one line. And he goes through the whole poem doing this so that there's an endless amount of rhyming, an endless rhythmical quality, and yet something, some things which are 
should be fine and not fine. And at the heart of it, there's this mystery. And so it's a most mysterious poem. It grabs your attention. You listen to it. It's the voice is incantatory. It's charming. There's a sort of it, it just casts a spell, uh, and yet. You, you start to worry, as the, as the mariner does, and the poet on behalf of the mariner, about why these things happen. Why did he shoot the albatross? No reason is given in the poem. Why then does he bless the water snakes when they come along? He blesses them unaware. He doesn't know why he's blessed them. He just blesses them, and then things start to get better for him briefly. So what is that? Um, you know, where's the moral? Um, business in here. Did he, you know, why did he, he didn't choose to bless them, nor in a way did he choose for any reason that we're giving to shoot the albatross. Nor do we know whether, whether the albatross really was a bird of good omen or bad omen, and whether the shooting of the albatross caused all the nightmare things that followed. So I think it's a wonderful poem about cause and effect and the difficulty in the moral world of saying what is cause and effect, and what is God, and where is God, and what's God's purpose for us. And, that, and that's the nightmare aspect of it. There's no answer to that in the poem, although in later versions he adds a gloss which seems to suggest more of a kind of moral uh, certainty about the poem. But the poem itself is not morally certain, but it's, it's just an extraordinary feat of the imagination, and Coleridge is the writer of the imagination. He is the, the, the poet critic who gave imagination a capital I in his um, book Biographia Literaria and explained what he thought the poet was doing when he used his imagination. Jeffrey, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, Coleridge, the writer of the imagination, and uh, the way Rosemary brought to life those extracts and captured the the genius of the poem. And it is interesting, Jeffrey, isn't it, when you look at the religious themes embedded in the poem? Because Coleridge was someone who who followed continental philosophy, was very interested in religion, certainly seems to have uh, been very interested in the spiritual dimension of things and a lot of transitions in his life. And that also comes through very clearly in the work. Absolutely. And I think something like the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is very much of that period in the 1790s when he is himself a Unitarian preacher. Uh, This is a time of tremendous energy, especially around the Bristol area. And he is speaking publicly. He's speaking about the slave trade. And it is that religious impulse that sits behind so much of what he's doing. And to pick up on something that Rosemary said, because it was so fascinating to ask these questions as she was asking them, I found myself thinking, why? Why? And yet what I think Coleridge does so often is not necessarily answer the question why as so much as to tell us the result. And isn't there a bit of that religious element there that in that dissenting culture that he is working in, they would have perhaps felt that sense of why, why are all of these bad things happening, right? Someone like the mariner who has entered into this, what we might call in sort of ancient language or classic religious language, uh, original sin or something like that. We might say, but why? And yet the poem seems to show us over and over again the results. And I think in that sense, it's bringing together something that's very, you might say, ancient, with something that's very modern. I mean, if we advance the story just a bit in the poem, those wonderful lines when he says, alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, and never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. And isn't that itself quite a startling revelation of how many of us feel. Certainly in a time of pandemic, I think that's the case, that sense of isolation or loneliness or longing for some community. And yet what happens very shortly after in the poem is this unexpected work. And some would say it's grace. We're not sure what it is entirely. But whereas before he had enjoyed a sort of negative relationship and with creation, with the world around him, with nature, suddenly he finds himself switching over. And he says, oh, happy living things, no tongue their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart 
and I blessed them unaware. Sure, my kind saint took pity on me, and I blessed them unaware. And in that moment, he says, he was suddenly able to pray. And it was in that moment that the albatross falls from his neck and sank like lead into the sea. And so here, I think we, we find Coleridge working with that very sort of, you might say, ancient religious vision, but also in a very modern sort of dissenting culture in the 1790s, full of energy and speaking to the masses. This poem is doing something, I think, very interesting in that context. Okay, well, tonight we are exploring the poetry and the life of uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the conflicted life and the extraordinarily imaginative poetry. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to the great Coleridge scholar, Professor JCC Mays, Jim Mays, on that life and that poetry. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Now, we're delighted and honoured to be joined by a world-renowned Coleridge scholar. Professor JCC Mays is Emeritus Professor of Modern English and American Literature at University College Dublin, and his books include Coleridge's Ancient Mariner, Coleridge's Experimental Poetics, and Coleridge's Dejection Ode, but uh, lots more besides. Uh, Jim, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks. Can I begin by asking a question about Coleridge and his poetry? Because I think when when people mention Coleridge, they immediately think of maybe two or three poems, The Ancient Mariner, uh, Kubla Khan, maybe Christabel. But as your work and your research has shown, there is really quite an extraordinarily large output of poems and works. So maybe tell tell us about that and about just the, 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 the range and, and, and what we see with, with his works. Well, it fills... Um six volumes, in effect, um, two times three volumes, because one is presenting it in a complicated way and a comprehensive way, and another is presenting it in a more um, mediated way. Um, so um, six volumes, um, two volumes of plays. Um, not many people know that he wrote plays, but he wrote one which was pretty successful in its time, played for 20 nights at Drury Lane. That, that's the only piece of poetry that made him any money. Um, and the rest is made up of, um, well, you could call them incidental poems. I mean, they're, they're on absolutely everything, a great number of them not on poetic subjects at all. I was just looking at one here. on um, It's on, 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 on a, a shaving pot, an elegiac plusquam sesquis ponet, sonnet to my tin shaving pot. And it's one of of two poems he wrote on, on shaving pots stuck in the middle of a, an open fire uh, to which he formed attachments. So he wrote that kind of poem. He wrote political poems. He wrote poems about uh, where he lived, so in effect nature poems. He wrote poems uh, about things he didn't understand, really. Um, a poem called Christabel. Um, he wrote a poem which he pretended came to him in a dream, but I think is more likely came to him in a hallucinogenic state um, called Kubla Khan. He wrote on on both sides in politics. Yeah, he wrote the. I mean, the, they're mainly short. I must say, um, mainly not longer than four pages. He didn't write anything to the extent that Walter Scott or Wordsworth wrote. And, and is there a sense that some of the poets around him were perhaps becoming professional poets, but that he was decidedly not a professional and therefore he, he some of the poems weren't finished? He, he seemed to bring a different, a different mentality to, to, to his art. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, he, he didn't think of himself as a professional. I think... The words amateur and professional were evolving at that time. I mean, they, they suited the law and they suited medical doctors, but uh, other people just got on with what they were doing, um, except um, things were changing. And, for instance, Wordsworth's first published poems, you could say in the old way, in, in an amateur way, there were poems he felt he wanted to write about places, um, but as time went on, he began to move apart from Coleridge. He was in collaboration with Coleridge um, by this time, the time of lyrical ballads in 1798. And he revised that volume and imposed his own personality on it. 
and within another 10 years, he was writing poems and introductions that explain the purpose and the sort of structure of the volumes and how they hung together, um, that kind of thing. Coleridge was always, um, I think, always moved by the spirit of the moment. It's one reason why his poems are relatively short. I mean, they tend, they tend to be like, you could say like torsos, um, you know, like statues without heads and arms, just just the, the body from the knees up to the neck. Um, and um, in a way, once he'd said everything he'd wanted to say, um, he left the poem with the problem on the page without trying to work it through in a way that took notice of readers who are going to want a conclusion. And finally, what would you see as his legacy as a poet? Well, it's difficult to say. He wrote three great poems. I mean, they're great because people read them as kids and they read them as grown-ups. Um, the Ancient Mariner and then um, Christabel, which is not as well known as The Ancient Mariner, but was hugely important in the 19th century um, as a model for late 19th century poets. And Kubla Khan, which has sort of moved from number three to number two, as it were, after the ancient mariner. Those three are right there. I don't think they'll ever be forgotten. I mean, they were, the ancient mariner was famous in its own time. There's a, an anecdote. It's not in Byron's letters. It's in somebody else's letters where they report Byron at a party saying, um, uh, no, we've all got our albatrosses. And, um, he must have been referring to the poem. You know, we've all got something strung around our necks that we've got to deal with and sort out. Um, but apart from those three poems, which have changed enormously, phase by phase, you can trace the history of taste by looking at the, the illustrated version that came out in that 20 years during the 200 years since the things were written. Um, there's, there's not much. When people want to do something a bit more than those three, they, they toss in a variety of little poems. Um, sometimes some of the most boring, but that seem to describe what, what happened in their view to Coleridge. Um, one one odd thing is um, thinking of Coleridge's reputation, the importance of, um, of, of, of in, in trying to work out his reputation, working out the place of uh, Carlyle in it. Um, going back to Coleridge and religion, I said at the beginning that, that he was interested in a lot of things, and the things that introduced... In, in, that interested the Victorians was particularly his religion. He began as a Unitarian, moved on to become pretty conventional, well, a pretty conventional, unconventional in a few ways, um, Church of England person writing books about it. Um, and uh, he was an influence on, on conservative thinkers who were influential, a man called F.D. Morris, um, was at Cambridge and lived on into the later 19th century and propagated Coleridge's ideas. But meanwhile, um, Coleridge could also be pretty radical about a lot of things. I think he read German a great deal and was impressed by what German theological critics were writing about the status of the Bible and the difference between different versions of the Gospel. OK, well, brilliant reflections there by Professor J.C.C. Mays, Emeritus Professor of Modern English and American Literature at University College Dublin, a leading Coleridge scholar. And Jim, thanks so much for joining us tonight. I'm glad to be of help. We'll be back with more Talking History and more on the life, legacy and poetry of Coleridge right after this break. Talking History, History. on News Talk. 
Well, welcome back as we look at the life and poetry of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. I'm joined by Professor William Keach, Professor Rosemary Ashton, Professor Tim Fulford and Professor Geoffrey Barbeau. And before the break there, we heard from Professor JCC Mays. Uh, lovely texts coming in as people tell us about their own favourite Coleridge lines or lines they learned at school. Or uh, a great one here from someone who says that they're loving the show uh, because their father instilled it in them. Uh, he left school at 13 but was self-educated and had a poem for everything. And the listener says that uh, he'd be bent over the table with his ear to the radio enjoying this if he was still alive. And thanks. So uh, lots of wonderful memories coming in uh, from our listeners as as we look at the life and poetry of Coleridge. And William, I wonder, could we talk about some of the criticisms that seem to have been levelled at Coleridge over the centuries his dis- he was dismissed as being nothing more than, say, an opium addict and the addiction overshadowed everything else. Or these allegations of plagiarism that seem to have, have haunted him and haunted his work, that there did seem to be these shadows that kind of uh, covered and obscured uh, the real work. Uh Yes, I think that's a good way to put it. I, I, I don't think they should be dismissed. I mean, uh, Coleridge's uh, addiction to opium was a, a certainly a personal tragedy uh, for him and for people who loved him and cared about him and cared for him. Um, and, um, uh, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. Um, the, the textual relationship between the philosophical writing he did that was inspired by German idealist philosophy and the actual text of Fichte and Schelling and the German writers that he was drawing on in relation to his own. Those are important areas of, of uh, that have been important areas of scholarship, but I don't think they should be minimized. But uh, my own feeling is that the discussion centered around those topics was much more prominent um, 20, 30, 40 years ago than it is now. Uh, and um, and there's a more, I think, uh, uh, complex uh, general sense of people who read Coleridge in those ways um, as to how to deal with those issues in relationship to what's great and fascinating and inspiring and, and mystifying about his poetry and, and what is uh, so insightful about his criticism. Uh, and I think we're in a better place with regard to all that than uh, than we, uh, we once were. There is just one other issue listening to Professor May speak. Uh, he, his edition of Coleridge is absolutely astonishing piece of scholarship. I mean, as someone who did a much simpler and uh, a more modest edition of Coleridge's poetry, I have, I have so much respect and, and uh, uh, amazement at what it must have taken uh, to, to, to produce the, his, his Princeton edition of the poems. But just one issue that he touched upon very briefly, or actually kind of indirectly, is the issue of revision. Um, one of the things that any editor of Coleridge has to deal with is that Coleridge was a, a relentless reviser of his poems, especially of the poems, and mainly of the poems that were actually published. Uh, the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, the, first, the, the, the version of it that appeared uh, as the first poem in Lyrical Ballads of 1798, was very, very different in its language uh, from uh, subsequent editions. And Coleridge changed passages in it and revised it recurrently and then sort of decisively and finally for its republication in the, in the volume Sibylline Leaves in 1817. But, um, but th- that aspect of Coleridge is very fascinating to think about. And it's not necessarily one that might be might seem to be consistent with Coleridge, the poet who who thinks in poetry and produces poetry in all kinds of informal ways and then goes on to the next thing. Uh, he didn't always go on to the next thing when it came to his published poetry. And um, that's both a, um, a tremendous challenge for people who are editing him, but also a fascinating thing to think about. There is actually one anecdote. I can't remember exactly where it comes from. Um, someone described uh, an evening with Coleridge in which Coleridge came to dinner and uh, saw a, a volume of his poetry on the shelf at this person's in this person's uh, house or apartment, 
and um, picked it up and started looking through it and began making annotations in the, in the margins of his own poems um, uh, in that kind of context. And that, uh, that he did that, uh, I suppose one way to put it would be, can stand as a kind of nightmare moment for those of us who've tried to struggle with the, the, the task of editing, editing his poems in a, in a reasonable and clear way. And it's funny, the person whose book was, was written on was probably furious at the time, but of course, that volume would now be worth an absolute fortune because Absolutely. it was not only an early edition, but had Coleridge's own corrections and changes and annotations on it. What better and what more typical thing to have? Very good. Rosemary, can we talk about his unhappy marriage? Because he seems to have embarked on a, on, a, on a marriage that made him profoundly unhappy and then contributed to his him, him being both a bad husband and, and it seems a bad father. Yes, well, I'm afraid that's right. Um, but but it's, part of this, it's part of the story of Coleridge, which I think we, we, we have to try and get over. Uh, I mean, what you've just been talking about, uh, Coleridge knew everybody and everybody came to know him. Uh, and other poets, younger poets like Keats, and Shelley and Byron all bowed the, bowed the knee to him in various ways and admired him, while at the same time finding him uh, difficult because of the opium and so on. They had plenty of things to complain about. And one of the things, unfortunately, was that he did abandon his family. Um, uh, he simply could not live with the wife that he had married because he had a, this is just as a student, he, he got out of the army, as I mentioned earlier. His, his brothers bought him out of the army. He was a student. He was supposed to go back to Cambridge to finish his degree. But no, he went off. First of all, uh, he was intending to go back. He went off on a summer walking tour with a friend, ended up in Oxford, met another young um, student who was also pro French Revolution and generally against the, the, the conservative government at home, Robert Southey in Oxford. And Southey and Coleridge more or less fell into one another's arms and they devised there and then uh, a plan, give up studying in Cambridge and Oxford uh, uh, respectively, and go off uh, as a group. Uh, each would marry somebody and they would, they would all be, and they would marry sisters and they would go off as a small group of people to the Susquehanna uh, area, uh, the area of the river, the Susquehanna in the, in Philadelphia, and they would, um, you know, they would be pioneers, and they would till the earth, and as they till the earth, they would write poems, and they would talk philosophy over the fire, and all that kind of thing. Genuinely, we've got letters between them talking about exactly that. And Savvy had already become engaged to a young woman in Bristol who had several sisters, uh, two of whom were also already um, promised to another two young friends who were going to come on this, this tour as well. And so Coleridge was to marry the other sister, Sarah Fricker. And Coleridge was so taken by Savvy and the plan that he thought, yes, that's fine, he would do that. A foolish man. He was very young and he was very foolish and he really only married her for the pantisocracy scheme. He hardly knew Sarah Fricker. Lo and behold, within a year, they, they all went off and did their own thing to try and plan and uh, save a bit of money to actually get themselves to America. Lo and behold, um, within a year, somebody had cooled to the Susquehanna idea and thought perhaps they might farm in Wales. And then soon after that, somebody found that an aunt um, was, uh, had left him quite a lot of money so he didn't have to um, till the soil or do anything. He could live quite comfortably. And so poor Coleridge was left. Uh, the Susquehanna thing was off. Pantisocracy, it was called, which was the equal government uh, of all, by all, on the French revolutionary thesis. Uh, uh, um, and Coleridge was left uh, and married Sarah Fricker, hardly knowing her. And immediately, it was not a happy marriage. They had four children, one of whom died in infancy, but they had three surviving children whom Coleridge said they both loved, but they could not love one another. And he simply, and of course, he fell in love with other women, women that were unavailable. Uh, and that's why he fell in love with him, I think, because he's rather frightened, frightened of sex, frightened of 
of doing the wrong thing. He was frightened of a lot of things. He was, a, he was psychologically really very damaged by his rather terrible childhood and lack of, of support from the family. And so basically, he, he, you know, uh, he himself was not much loved as a child, not by his mother, apparently. Father died when he was very young. And he was not able to love a wife. He loved his children, but he could not stay with them. And also, he was ill and opium addicted. And so he became, and this is partly why people find and found him so fascinating in a horrible way in some ways, he became the type of his own ancient mariner. He, he left his family home in 1803 and never went back. Uh, died in 1834 after having lived in various places, always picked up by those who admired his genius and wanted to help him. And he became a kind of lodger-come-friend in various households, people trying to help him. And that was it, really. He just he was not a good father. Uh, far from it. Wordsworth and Southey were left to look after the education of the boys. And generally... Poor Coleridge, he was a wanderer on the earth, really, uh, just like his mariner. Jeffrey, you've written a, a hugely successful biography of of their daughter Sarah Coleridge, uh, subtitled "Her Life and Work," and she, of course, was a, a poet, a theologian, and she was also someone who was very successful at, I think, defending and presenting Coleridge's image to a, a later audience in the nineteenth century. That's right. And, you know, the, the ironic thing is that many thought that it was going to be Coleridge's son, Hartley, who would really be the next generation's genius and inherit so much of the positive intellectual energy that he had. But it turned out that Hartley, though he certainly did some wonderful things, also inherited some of those negative traits. And it turned out instead that Sarah was the real inheritor. And as Rosemary said, that relationship was somewhat strained, right? I mean, he was gone for so many years. In fact, there's a story that at one, at one time, a portrait was made of her uh, in the role of the Highland girl, and it was showed uh, to Coleridge, uh, her father. And at first he didn't recognize that it was his own daughter. Uh, what a stunning thing. And yet in her later years, when she married, she moved near her father, and they restored their relationship. And what's so fascinating is the way that Sarah then took up her father's work, especially at the very end of his life and after his death and became really uh, responsible for much of his legacy and made that sort of her own vocation. Her, her work was to take care of his legacy and present it for the next generation. There's these lovely lines in one of her own poems, which are really fascinating, I think, as well. But there's this wonderful uh, two lines that say, Father, no amaranth's heir shall wreathe my brow, enough that round thy grave they flourish now. And there's this sense of her own awareness that she would never quite be a sort of champion, that she would never be the victor. And yet it was enough for her that she could uh, make his legacy something that would go on. And I think she really devoted herself to that. And, and in many ways, I think she's quite responsible for defending him on different counts, such as the plagiarism. And she took up uh, the study of German simply so she could read through the philosophers and understand what they said and then check his works in what many consider even today to be the sort of founding work of defense of her father. And it was that sort of labor of love for her father that I think proved all the difference for his legacy. Tim, we also asked you to we asked you to think about a poem that you might uh, read for our listeners, and I think you've picked one of his uh, conversation poems. That's right. I picked Frost at Midnight, which I think is a wonderful poem. It's a meditation on Coleridge's state of mind as he sits late at night in his cottage, with the only other sounds within the cottage being that of the the breathing of his uh, baby son. And it's a poem about what he imagines outside the cottage in the darkness, nature. But it's also a poem about the future of his son and his hopes and about his own role as a father as he thinks about what his role is and what the situation now is. So it's a poem about what's out there, but also what's in there in his head that changes as he writes. It's very fluid. I won't have time to read it all, but I'll give you an introduction to its 
calm conversational meditational flow this is a a wonderful poem that uh, achieves a sense of rest and introspection the frost performs its secret ministry unhelped by any wind the owlet's cry came loud and hark again loud as before the inmates of my cottage all at rest have left me to that solitude which suits abstruser musings save that at my side my cradled infant slumbers peacefully. Tis calm indeed, so calm that it disturbs and vexes meditation with its strange and extreme silentness. Sea, hill and wood, this populous village, sea and hill and wood, with all the numberless goings-on of life, inaudible as dreams. The thin blue flame lies on my low-burnt fire, and quivers not. Only that film which fluttered on the grate still flutters there, the sole unquiet thing. Methinks its motion in this hush of nature gives it dim sympathies with me who live, making it a companionable form. And the rest of the poem continues to meditate upon that companionship between the exterior world and the inner world, and the way in which our state of mind is influenced by the exterior world, but then in turn remakes what we know of the exterior world and reshapes it so that reality is influencing us, but is then of our making as well. And we achieve a sense of confidence and joy through our understanding of this. And Tim, we're almost out of time, but in a way that description of the poem is a wonderful summation of the legacy and the, the continuing relevance of of Coleridge because of, as our panel has been saying tonight he was a poet of the imagination and it's that imagination that continues to provoke and inspire That's right very good. Well, my thanks to my brilliant panel of experts for bringing the life and poetry of Coleridge uh, to, for us tonight. Uh, Professor William Keach, Professor Rosemary Ashton, Professor Tim Fulford, Professor Geoffrey Barbeau, and we also heard from Professor JCC Mays. And that does, I'm afraid, bring us to the end of tonight's show on Samuel Taylor Coleridge. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cal, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll find out about the English poet and composer whose life was haunted by fighting in the First World War. We'll talk about Jewish women fighters of the Jewish resistance. And we'll ask the question, when did America stop being great? So join us next week on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking History on News Talk.